This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, To Find the Way of Love, The Purpose of Our Existence. And the author is Oliver E. Dean. And Oliver joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Oliver. Hello, Steve. Good to have you with us. To Find the Way of Love, you say, discusses the evolution of human relationships which are influenced by and dependent on some fundamental forces that appeared at the moment the universe was created. It asserts that our relationships are the most important elements in our lives. They define our lives more than our achievements, and the choices we make to shape them involve the greatest exercise of our free will. You've been down a lot of roads. Some of them uh, you're, you've struggled and... Uh, out of this came this idea. You said you've had this for some time. Yes. Uh, I thought that for the first 30 years of my life, I felt that individualism was probably the most important thing in living. And But that gradually began to change. Uh, in college, I began to learn more about the community and the common good. And then I had a bout with alcoholism for 10 years. And my recovery from that in AA, it's been 35 years now that I have been sober and haven't had a drink. But more than that, I've learned a lot more about relationships and a new way of living. You know, based on initially the 12 steps of AA, but then taking off from there, learning about more aspects you know, of our lives and how to live together more fruitfully. So writing this book really changed you. Yes, it has. Uh, as I say, I, I used to think more of the individual and probably was more self-centered, you know, until, <clears throat> you know, I began to focus more on relationships and cooperation with other people. And so that aspect of my life really has changed significantly. You also say that we are constantly faced with choosing between self-interest and altruism, and all too often, except for essential needs of family, we choose self-interest. That becomes uh, destructive? It can. Uh, One of the most important things that we've inherited, you know, as human beings, you know, is our brain. And the brain will support, you know, bad behavior and good behavior. Mm-hmm. And the choice is always up to us to make. And if we choose, you know, self-interest over concern for other people, it usually has a bad outcome. It may appear to be beneficial. We may achieve economic success and maybe other kinds of successes, but at the expense of damaging our relationships with others. You talk about the development of hierarchy. Now explain hierarchy. Hierarchy is, you know, a 
a pyramidal organization of humans where you know power one person you know, dominates the organization or the hierarchy and is superior to all other levels of individuals who are in the hierarchy it's probably the most common form of social organization in the world it's hard to identify you know any organization that is not hierarchical whether it's government or church or even you know social uh, associations and clubs there's the feeling that the higher you are in the hierarchy the more important or even uh, the better you are than all the rest below that level and this po political or economic uh, inequality because of this hierarchy can foster uh, a lot of problems, including conflict in the world. Oh, yes, and it does. I think it's, uh, you know, that idea is very current in terms of what's happening around the world. You know, look at the Middle East. The, uh, the two sides, the, uh, you know, uh, Islamists and the Israelis each feel that they're superior to the other. And instead of saying, you know, we're both in this together and trying to work on that basis. Often when we describe ourselves, we describe ourselves in terms of achievements, but you say achievements, well, they're important, but they're obviously not the bottom line of our success. I believe that. Uh, for, you know, talking about the importance of relationships, for example, uh, probably the most important element in all our lives is our relationship with our parents. You know, uh, but for them, we wouldn't be here. And too often, that relationship, you know, is not the most productive that it could be. You also talk about equality which doesn't mean identical. Uh, explain that to us. There's an anecdote in the book, which I'll paraphrase here. Uh, it was a personal experience I had. I was a Navy pilot, and I was on the aircraft carrier in Istanbul back in the early 50s. And I was the officer of the deck on one of the uh, gangways when I saw this uh, event. We were anchored in Istanbul Harbor, and a scow, self-propelled scow, began to approach the aircraft carrier loaded with provisions, which we were going to take aboard. And he was coming to the starboard side, and, <clears throat> which was reserved for the gangway. There was reserved for officers and VIPs. And the officer of the deck was standing, you know, at the head of the gangway, with a bullhorn, and he kept telling the uh, scow, which seemed to be guided by a man standing in the bow of it, to go to the port side, the other side of the ship, because that's where supplies were delivered. As the scow approached closer, the man in the bow of the scow called to the officer of the deck, I want to speak to your captain. And the officer of the deck says, no, 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 go to the other side, port side. And the man of the scow repeated it, I want to speak to your captain. 
again, the officer of the deck you know, said no. So the man on the scow said, are you the captain of that deck, of that ship? <clears throat> and the officer of the deck said, no, I'm not. So the man on board the scow said, well, I'm the captain of this one, and I want to speak to your captain. Well, in Navy or sea time, seafaring tradition, captains always greet captains. So with that, the officer of the deck turned and called for his captain, who did appear, and the two captains greeted each other, and then the captain of the scow moved it over to the port side, and that was the end of the encounter. But I think that illustrates equality of relationship. The relationship was very brief, and the circumstances of the two people involved you know, could not have been more different. Commander of the aircraft carrier was commanding a ship, you know, one of the most powerful, you know, weapons, you know, in the world. And the other man was commanding a scow that probably couldn't survive in the open sea. But as, you know, captains, they recognized the equality of each other and were able to just share that moment. I think that can happen much, much more in many other relationships. And that's a good example of what I mean by equality in relationships. It doesn't mean equality of circumstance, you know, which rarely happens at the same time. Now, of course, uh, the opposite of equality, inequality. And you say inequality is the root of all evil. I believe it is, if you uh, think about it. You know, uh, so much of the world is organized along hierarchical lines, you know, and where there are differences, you know, in the power of individuals, you're going to have contention, conflict, you know, and problems to try and, you know, if you think about relationships that are in trouble, equality is probably very prominent you know, in those relationships and at the root of the problem. And the quality of those relationships, they are under our control and the exercise of our free will? Yes, they are. They, uh, that's one of the best things you know, about the fact that we have free will is we can make decisions about how we relate to other people in our lives, our children, our spouse, you know, our friends. It's up to us. And we're faced with those kinds of decisions many times in every day. And of course, in these relationships, as you point out, everything is personal. So at this uh, local level, everything is personal. And, and I guess that's the bottom line. Yes, you know, even relationships between nations, you know, depend upon individuals who are negotiating whatever, you know, issue has to be negotiated. So it comes down to the personal level very quickly. Well, often the human brain is hardwired for both revenge and it can be hardwired for altruism. Uh, how do we help people to see the difference and to act accordingly? Uh, the difference in terms of human evolution you know, occurred you know, after the age of reptiles, uh, age of reptiles and dinosaurs. 
were succeeded by the age of uh, mammals, you know, which we're in now. And the one distinctive characteristic of a mammal as opposed to a reptile is parenting. Uh, reptiles don't have that capacity. In fact, they even cannibalize their young or other of their own kind. But when the mammals appeared, you know, along with the appearance of mammals, the brain had evolved to the point where the individual was concerned about others. And that's the the essence of altruism and changes the nature of relationships between individuals. Now you see what you call the new society. What is the new society? Uh, I don't think there's any simple definition, uh, but it's a society that will succeed, you know, the current one, uh, which is hierarchical. The biggest difference is it would not be a hierarchical organized society. Some of the organizations that exist today which kind of demonstrate uh, the nature of that society are outlined in the fourth sector, which I discuss in the book. These are organizations which combine the characteristics of, you know, current-day capitalism, nonprofit ventures, and other altruistic uh, endeavors. And more and more, this sector of society is increasing both in um, size and importance. You worked closely for several years with Bill Hewlett of Hewlett-Packard, and you have a great deal of respect for him. How was that company different from others? I worked with Bill Hewlett for seven years. I was the CEO of the hospital in Palo Alto for Stanford Medical School, and Bill Hewlett was chairman of the board. And he said, a great example for me. We spent a lot of time together personally, and he was a mentor as well as my boss. <clears throat> he had He and Dave Packard had established uh, their company, you know, in a garage. But they had personal histories, you know, very uh, community and. <clears throat> and democratically oriented. One example, early on in my experience with Bill Hewlett, he came and he spoke to the executive group that I was heading. And he told how early in the development of their company, he and Dave Packett had told the employees that they expected a certain level of profit before um, taxes. And once that level was achieved, Everything beyond that would return to the employees in the way of profit sharing. They maintained that, certainly as long as Hewlett and and Packard were alive and involved in the company. I don't know what's happened since then. But that was one of the earliest uh, profit sharing uh, performed by a major corporation. The two men lived very modestly. And they truly uh, were concerned.
concern, you know, for others. And the achieve the uh, enormous material wealth that they both achieved was not their purpose or their goal. You know, it's something that happened because they wanted to do something good that would help individuals and the community. The title of the book, To Find the Way of Love, The Purpose of Our Existence. The author is Oliver E. Dean. Oliver, tell us how to get your book. You can go online. We have a website, and the website is www.tofindthewayoflove.com. It can also be ordered through Author House in Bloomington, Indiana, or through Amazon. Amazon.com. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you love finding fabulous deals and enjoy fashion and discussing celebrities? Then you've touched the right dial. Join the lovely ladies of Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole, Lakeisha, and Raquel, as they get your weekend started off right. Every week on Friday at 6 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. They'll be discussing great deals on hot products, affordable fashions, and the latest celebrity news. We know you'll feel good after listening to this show and eager to come back the following week to tune in and hear news, tips, and advice on how to save while shopping for amazing products. For more on your Celebrity Coupon hosts and amazing deals and downloads, check out their webpage at CelebrityCoupon.com. You never know who'll be joining them and what giveaways they'll have. It's talk radio like never before. Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole. Lakeisha and Raquel. Friday afternoons at 7, 6 central on toginet.com. It's time to get your boots on with a boot campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray. Thursdays at noon, 1 central on toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Amarutha, What the Pope's Man Found Out About the Law of Nature. And the author is John Weingartz, and John joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, John. Hello. Hi. Well, good to have you with us. Uh, before we get into your background and, and uh, why you decided to write this book, let me read what you have written about your book. You say, a moving and entertaining story that draws attention to conscious 
as the main principle underpinning Catholic and Christian sexual ethics. You also talk about Monsignor Seamus McKenna. He's the main character. He begins as a narrow-minded bureaucrat in Vatican service. And then, of course, the Pope commissions him to study natural laws that pertains to women. And in his quest for truth, it brings him to explore options that he had never considered before. And then he discovers Amarutha. And we'll talk about her and also about her name and about the women that he meets. Uh, First of all, though... John, tell us about your background. Uh, You've been, uh, most of your life, you studied and were a practicing Catholic priest. Well, I am a Catholic priest, yes. I was born in Indonesia from Dutch parents. Uh, Then after the war, you know, during the war, I was in a prisoner of war camp under the Japs with my mother and the rest of our family. We survived and we went back to the Netherlands. And then after a while, I decided um, I was called to be a priest. So I studied for the priesthood, and I joined a missionary society called the Mill Hill Missionaries. Uh, You may never have heard of them. It's a Catholic missionary society with missions in Asia, Africa, Pacific Islands, you name it. But I was sent to study theology in Rome. I got to know Rome quite well. And as you know, theology is the study of scripture, tradition, you know, sacred doctrine. And then when I was appointed to work in India, my job was to train future priests in a major seminary, as we call it, that is a college for seminarians for priests in training. And after that, after 14, 15 years in India, I was elected vicar general of uh, my congregation, the Mill Hill Missionaries. So for quite a few years, I was a kind of personnel manager, traveling all around the globe, uh, trying to help you know, our own men as they were working in various parts of the world and sometimes rearranging for their work, you know, for them to be transferred to different places, etc. And after that, I was uh, given a new task, which was to support um, the work of communication uh, through the media, mainly through video courses at the time. And during all those years, because by now I've traveled through 30 <coughs> 35 years of my life, um, I wrote quite a few books, uh, some of them about sacred scripture, some on um, spirituality, you know, people's personal lives, trying to help people um, in different ways by giving them the right kind of teaching. So that's my background. I don't know if that uh, makes sense to you, Steve. Yes, thank you for sharing that with us. And of course, in the process, uh, you, though, develop some questions, uh, which are evident in your book. You develop some questions as it pertains to women, whether women can be in the priesthood, and also, I guess, about celibacy. That's right, yes. I believe the Roman Catholic Church, which I'm firmly committed to, uh, and I'm not attacking you know, the Catholic Church as such, but 
I believe that in its present management, um, some outdated uh, views, uh, some kind of wrong interpretations of sacred scripture and tradition, they have lasted till our day. For example, the conviction that Jesus himself never wanted women to be ordained priests. And also, as you mentioned about celibacy, you know, the stress on celibacy as if every priest uh, needs to be um, unmarried. Now, celibacy can have some advantage, you know, for some people in certain jobs, but it's wrong to kind of impose it as an, a general obligation on all priests, because not all priests are called to be celibate. Uh, but among other things, and now I'm uh, more or less coming in the area of this book, <clears throat> I also had to counsel quite a lot of people on sexual ethics. And uh, I started the website, uh, thebodyisbacrest.org, and in the context of that website, I got so many questions that it focused my attention on natural law. Now, would you like me to start talking about the book? Yes, let's talk about Monsignor Seamus McKenna. Let's find out about him. Tell us what is his, uh, his focus at first, and of course, then this transformation. That's right. Now, if you want to understand my book, it is a drama on three levels. You see, there is a human story. <clears throat> which I believe is quite full of tension and conflict and very adventurous. But Monsignor Seamus McKenna, who is one of the Pope's men, you know, he is an advisor to the Pope. Um, he is convinced he has a mission to study the nature of women. And so he starts traveling. But then on his journeys, he discovers that life is totally different from what he thought it was. You know, Seamus is really an innocent man, uh, naive, very well-intentioned, uh, but not somebody, you know, with great intelligence. But when he meets Amrutha, Amrutha, who is an Indian woman, uh, he meets just the opposite kind of character. Now, Amrutha herself has gone through a very difficult life. She hails from a small Indian village, her father was a Brahmin priest who died early. Her mother committed suicide when she was raped by one of the local farmers. And then um, Amrutha is handed over to an aunt who treats her very cruelly and even tries to um, arrange a marriage and force her to marry someone she doesn't want. But Amrutha escapes from this marriage, not like her sister, who unfortunately marries an epileptic man. And when this man dies, um, she's forced to uh, be burnt alive on the funeral pyre, as still happens occasionally in Hindu uh, fundamentalist circles. But anyway, to come back to Amrutha, Amrutha is a very resourceful person. She's full of energy and the great secret of her life is that she always manages somehow or other 
through her cunning, through her intelligence, uh, to overcome the obstacles that are in her way. Anyway, Must and Amrutha, uh, so Must is the spokesman, the continue, uh, they get married, and then they have a further series of adventures. This is the level of the human story, so to say. But underneath that is another drama, and that is about natural law. Now, let me hold here for a moment, because many people may not realize how important this law of nature actually is in the laws of ethics, and especially sexual ethics. Um, what do we mean with the law of nature? Well, you have the, the saying, pigs can't fly. And that is true. Pigs have this physical limitation. They have no wings. Now, you'd think that would also apply to human beings. Uh, human beings can't fly. But that is not true. Because through our intelligence, we have actually created artificial wings, aeroplanes, so that we can cross uh, from one continent over uh, huge oceans to other continents. And this brings us to the insight that uh, for human nature, as we already find in early Christian writers saying that in, for human beings, natural law is really the power of reason. It's our intelligence which also means because we are intelligent that we are responsible. We can choose what is right and wrong, and it's our duty to choose what is right. And that is human intelligence. Now, how does, it, does this apply to Christian ethics and the ethics of sex? Take, for example, a family, that, uh, two parents who are planning their family. They, they don't want eight or nine children, but they think they can responsibly educate two or three. Now, most families there will use contraceptives uh, to prevent birth, you know, in between uh, the people when they are ready to have another child. Now, this family planning, in the understanding of the nature that is now officially the doctrine of the Catholic Church, is totally wrong. It is said any form of contraceptive that blocks conception is a sin against nature. It is intrinsically wrong. It is a mortal sin that will take you to hell. Now, I know in the West, you know, in the United States and in Europe, uh, most Catholics uh, don't actually follow these uh, principles. They they have their own conscience to judge themselves by. But in the rest of the world, uh, this doctrine of the official Catholic Church is affecting millions and millions of people. Because if contraceptives are against the law of nature, you can't even, for example, allow uh, women to use condoms to protect themselves against husbands who are infected with AIDS as happens a lot in South Africa. You know, when it's against the law of nature, it's supposed to be always wrong. Anyway, to come back to the story, this Pope's man, Shays McKenna, he has gradually to discover the law of nature when applied to human beings should not be 
identification. Uh, but should be the response views of our human reason. Now there is a third level of drama in the story, and that's about church authority. Because at the moment, uh, within the Catholic Church, there are enormous movements for form for creating, you know, some of these uh, wrong understandings that come from the ancient past. The interpretation of natural law, for example, really goes back to Aristotelian philosophy. And there is no only reason why in our present day and age should hold on to that kind of principle. But because this small group of uh, assistants of the Pope, and perhaps the Pope himself, who are convinced that this is the true doctrine for the Catholic Church, um, there is at the moment a kind of an abuse of authority because they try to repress any form of criticism or opposition to what they believe is true. So uh, on all these levels, the whole book, I think from beginning to end, is full a kind of creative tension, which in the end, hope apart from entertaining people, will also be very thought-provoking. Well, we have uh, about a minute, minute and a half left. John, uh, would you like to say some things that come from your book and your philosophy about women in, in the Catholic Church? Yes. Uh, what I'd like to say is that in all major religions, that is Islam, Hinduism, and Christianity, uh, cultural traditions have uh, repressed women. Now, the same is, has happened in, in the Christian churches, and it's now still being carried on uh, in the Catholic Church, namely that all traditions, like not allowing women to have any leadership functions or to be ordained for the ministries, is um, now persisting as if it is God's will. Uh, and that, of course, is not the case. Now, this I also bring out in the book, you know, by showing examples of how this happens in all kinds of situations. So my uh, campaign within the Catholic Church is also very much to open people's eyes and to say, what would Jesus have wanted? You know, and if we really look at the Gospel and, you know, letters of St. Paul properly, we find that in Christ, we're all equal. There's no more any difference between free or slave, man or woman, you know, Greek or stranger. And this should apply very much uh, to the situation of women. They should just as much as men be allowed to be priests, bishops, and eventually, I'm sure, popes. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you, John. Uh, the title of the book, Amarutha, what the Pope's Man Found Out About the Law of Nature. And the author is John Weingards. Yes. John, tell us how to get your book. The best thing is to go to the website, The Body is Sacred.org. So The Body is Sacred is one word, thebodyissacred.org. And on every single page, uh, on the bottom, you'll find a reference to Amrutha. If you click on that, You'll find instructions on how you can get the book cheaply uh, and more efficiently by ordering them directly from the publisher. So 
because that's what I advise uh, anybody to do. Uh, the body is sacred.org. That is the answer. John, thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot for your patience. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Beichman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field, bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Where the Gulls Are. Fishing with Joe, and the author is Bob Burroughs, and Bob joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bob. Hello. Well, I want to read what you've written about fishing with Joe. Strap on your life jacket and pack your rain gear. You're going fishing with Joe. Joe probably never won a fishing tournament or held a world record. That's not why Joe fishes. This is an extraordinary book about fishing because it's about very ordinary Joe, his adventures, misjudgments, mistakes, errors, and occasional triumph. It's not a how-to book, but even veteran anglers will learn something from Joe, and non-anglers will be intrigued by Joe and by this infectious madness called fishing. And that's a good way to sum it up, I guess. Infectious madness. <laughs> Boy, there are a lot of fishermen, aren't there? There are. But some, uh, what did you say in your research you found how many? The numbers have changed a little bit since that was written, but I, I, I recently looked up the 2011 figures from the National Fish and Wildlife Service, and there are about 40 million recreational licenses issued in the United States in 2011. 40 million? 40 million. That's, it's 38 point something, but around 40 million. 
Well, this isn't about fish. This isn't about world records. This is just, as you put it, very ordinary Joe, kind of what you call him, Joe Sixpack, getting his rods and reels and heading off to the lake or heading to the stream. Well, exactly. And that's what you've done most of your life. Yes, yeah. Uh, I and, and, and the group of other Joes that I refer to in the book as our circle. Your circle, yeah. The guys you call up, let's go fishing. Yeah. You know, get away from it all. Well, yeah, certainly there's an element of that. Now, you grew up fishing. Well, it began when I was five years old. Um, and as a matter of fact, that's what Chapter 2 is all about. It tells that, that story. I, it's, it's amazing. I remember that day, even though I was five, I remember that day as vividly as if it were yesterday. Uh, it's uh, one of those things that it, it so commonly happens. I was, I was infected with fishing fever by well-meaning relatives, as, 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 as most of us are. Uh, and it's, it's a terrible disease because not only is it highly contagious, it's absolutely incurable. And there's a real plus to that as well, right? Well, yes, yes, because it's, it's, it's a sport that uh, is a lifetime sport. You, 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 your body can begin to fail. I mean, I have, I have joints that are wearing out and, and, uh, and the like, as, as most of us do when we get older. Um, but it's still something you can do. And you've passed this infection on to five sons and grandsons and one granddaughter. One granddaughter is, is just uh, terribly enthusiastic about <laughs> fishing. Oh, that's fun. I'm sure you have a ball with her doing that. Oh, she is. She routinely, on a trip, she routinely outfishes us all. <laughs> Always catches the most or the biggest one. Yeah. Or if she didn't, anyway, the stories are always big in, you know, world record setting, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, she really doesn't exaggerate. She doesn't have to. She doesn't have to. Now, you're a down-home, uh, do-it-yourself, uh, fix-it-up kind of guy. Uh, you, you've, uh, I mean, you're a college graduate. Uh, you're not only a college graduate, you attended Harvard Business School, but you really... Down-to-earth kind of a guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you, what, what's the old saying? You can take the boy out of the country, you can't take the country out of the boy. Right, so you kind of were taught that as a kid growing up, and it's just something you've kept doing. Yes. Cut your own wood, grow your own vegetables, uh, fix your own machinery and equipment and buildings, take care of them. The, you say you don't do roofs anymore, though. You don't climb up on the roof anymore. No, I'm not as nimble as I used to be, and uh, this old house, which was built by the first white settler in the township, um, has a very steep slate roof, so um, uh, I'm, I'm not stupid enough to go up there anymore. So who is Joe? How would you describe Joe if you're trying to uh, tell someone who's just finding out about your book? Well, the whole, the, the whole first chapter is devoted developing the answer to that question. Um, Joe is, and I'm not sure whether it's Joe or Joan, it's, it's, it's both. Um, they're, they're Joe Sixpack or John Q. Public or Jane Doe or any of those names that are given to plain ordinary folks. Uh, 
they're famously anonymous. They're remarkably unremarkable. And they fish unlimited budget and unlimited time, and there are an awful lot of now, the stories, uh, the chapters range all over North America. Yes. Some of your favorite fishing places? Oh, well, that's a difficult question. There are so many. I guess if I, well, no, I can't pick one. I just can't. Um, love Alaska. Love the Bahamas. Love the Great Lakes. Love the TVA system. It goes on. And in the process, though, you point out also some uh, waters that were environmental nightmares. Yes. Yeah. Um, That's sad. Well, it is sad, but uh, there's, there's um, great hope because the ones that I am most familiar with, of course, because of where I live, are the Ohio River and Lake Erie. Um, and one of the chapters deals with the story of yeah, a high school biology teacher who was way ahead of his time, Mr. Stoughton. He was in the avant-garde of, a, of an embryonic movement at that time called environmentalism. And I remember him telling us that we live between two bodies of water, both of which are dead uh, and can never recover. The events that followed that, though, and, and this is... This is dealt with in detail in the chapter that's entitled um, uh, A Fish Named Sauger. Uh, the intervening years have showed that with great effort and over a long time, Mother Nature is exceedingly resilient. And both the Ohio River and certainly Lake Erie uh, have come back to be outstanding fisheries. In fact, in the 70s and 80s, uh, Lake Erie was a phenomenal walleye venue. Um, Al Linder and, and, and his associates wrote a book called Walleye Wisdom. And in, in that, it was a wonderful book. And in that book, uh, there was a chapter devoted to what they called the Lake Erie phenomenon. And it certainly was a phenomenon. So uh, I, I, I hope that we have learned, if you stop abusing and mistreating and insulting Mother Nature, she will heal. Uh, it takes a long time and great effort. And I hope that we have learned over this period to stop insulting and mistreating her in the first place. Now, you don't have to have uh, or be rich and famous to have a great fishing experience. But you say the richness of the experience comes from the learning. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, let's see if I can, if I can put this reasonably succinctly. Um, if I knew that I could go to Lake Smith and use a, a, a green crankbait and um, in water of a certain temperature and of a certain depth, I could, I, could, I could limit out every day, I would probably quit fishing because it's the problem solving that is fun. It's, it's, the, it's the conditions change and weather changes and seasons change. And you know, to, yesterday's hot lure doesn't work today. Uh, last week's honey hole has gone dry. Why? The, the, uh, the, 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 
fun of it is solving those problems. And your book is filled with many photos, photos of that special uh, place, that special catch. Well, it, the book does not contain as many photos as I originally would have liked because the publisher uh, pointed out that uh, uh, it is very images are costly, so we limited it to about thirty, from, down from the hundred and eighty-six that originally were I had originally planned, uh, and they're basically photos that that begin chapters to kind of illustrate the venue. So the book is different uh, because it's about Joe Sixpack. Uh, it's a blue-collar, it's really blue-collar fishing. Exactly, exactly. It's about Joe Sixpack. It's not about Bill Vance. It's, it's not about uh, Roland Martin. Um, it's not about winning tournaments and catching world records. Uh, because there's a lot more to fishing than that. Well, there is one world record in the book, but that's that's not the theme. And as you say, it's about ignorance, not expertise, and that glorious aha moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, expert, there are there are a huge number of books out there that are how-to books that provide the expertise um, and that tell you how to catch fish. This is, not, this is not a how-to book. It's a why-not book. And it's also about living in tents, sleeping in pickup trucks, carrying canoes through swamps and over steep trails. Yeah. Not, not, not very much about luxury lodges or guides that you pay to uh, take you on a trip or clean your fish or cook your meals. Uh, you do it all. Yeah, yeah. For most of it, now there are, there are some some places where we have to, uh, where, where the group has to uh, has to lease or rent something, because none of us happen to own a De Havilland Beaver uh, or or um, uh, an offshore boat. But um, for the most part, yeah, it's it's all do it yourself. It's D, it's uh, it's DIY. And of course, you'll take place. You'll take us places. Uh, Joe will be the guide. Uh, probably places you would never choose to go to. Oh, exactly. Um, and for reasons as varied as as the number of readers. But yeah, that that's right. Um, one instance of that is. Uh, a lake in northern Ontario, which um, is is still unnamed, um, that we were we were flown into. Uh, that's in the chapter that's entitled "On Beaver's Wings." Um, so, if you said to me, "I'd like to go there," I would have to tell you I can show I can show the lake to you on a, uh, a satellite map, but I can't tell you how to get there. Because that, I think that bush pilot is has since retired. Any special uh, examples, stories uh, that you'd like? There's always a good fish story. You tell us one. <laughs> oh, gosh! Perhaps the best, uh, the most interesting fish story in 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 the book um, has to do with uh, the great bluefish blitz on the Outer Banks. 
it, it's 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 a fishing experience unlike any other. And this is back in the 1990s, and it's well, there's a chapter about it. It's it, the chapter's entitled "Chaos at Coquina." Um, and, and there is there is a photograph in that chapter that shows eight fish in a in a wide band at the, at the water's edge where they have been driven out of the water by feeding bait by feeding bluefish. Um, if you are not familiar with with the bluefish, there are there are several. Sizes. They're classified in sizes. There's the, the Taylor Blue and the Snapper Blue, which are small. They're found all up and down the East Coast and even into the Gulf. And then there's what's known as the Jumbo Blue or the Chopper Blue. And they're they they are are uh, they're large. They're you know go 12 to 20 pounds and and they're exceedingly aggressive. And back in those days, and it's not happening much anymore. But back in those days, they would migrate in the fall from the from New England waters down along the Atlantic coast and as far south as uh, as uh, Diamond Point at, at, at Cape Hatteras, and they would encircle uh, large pods of baitfish and drive them to the beach in order to feed on them. And when that is going on, that's called the locals call that a blitz. And when a blitz is in progress, uh, it's a fish on every cast, and it's a big fish on every cast. And on that particular day, there were four by fours lined up along the beach as far as you could see, north and south. And everybody is leaning back into an arched rod. Uh, everybody's got a fish on. They're all big fish, and typically a blitz would last a few minutes. This one lasted all day. So that is an adrenaline uh, pumper. Oh, it really is. It really is. Yes, there's uh, there's that thrill when you hook a fish and you feel it. That, I don't know how you describe that, but you don't. And once it's happened, that's how you say it becomes infectious. Well, and, and that is exactly what happened on that day that I mentioned earlier that I could remember as if it were yesterday. Um, you know, I'm standing there, a five-year-old, and and suddenly I have this. There's this surge out at the end of the line. There's something dynamic, something alive, something strong out there. I can't see it. It's invisible. It's a mysterious power. Fish got away. I never got it to the bank. But that fish wasn't hooked. But I was. <laughs> yes. Well, the title of the book, Where the Gulls Are, Fishing with Joe. And the author is Bob Burroughs. Bob, tell us how to get your book. Just go to Amazon, uh, Amazon Books, and, um, and enter, this, enter a search for Where the Gulls Are. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Well, thank you. <laughs> 